It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we have yet another guest episode. Yes, we have lined them up. There's more coming down the line, and we aren't going to spoil you with who they are. But today we get to talk to the marvelous Danielle Diebler of Marvelous AI. She's the CEO, and it's Marvelous AI is an information security platform built to combat online misinformation across news and social media through narrative detection and fine-grained emotional semantics. She's working on the 2020 presidential elections right now. And of course, we were interested in talking to her because, as you know, much of our content revolves around a core hypothesis of sensationalism, bias, misinformation in media that gets amplified, et cetera, et cetera. And we've always had good, juicy examples of it, but we've never had data. And so, you know, as soon as we ran into Danielle, we said, oh, my gosh, data. Got to talk to her. (laughs) From my perspective, I think that I come from a background in kind of like network security, like the origins of the Internet. Right. And kind of and maybe those naive origins of the Internet where you trusted everybody. We were like, oh, Um, everyone will have access to information to be able to talk to each other. The utopia is on its way. Yes, exactly. It'll be amazing. It'll be fantastic. We'll have this great discourse and we'll talk about things and we'll solve all the world's problems. And ultimately, that naivete has led us to a lot of protocols and, and kind of infrastructure that's like 30 years old that's actually built on that trust dynamic. And that's kind of why we are where we are today. And that's not necessarily, I don't want to say that's a terrible thing. I think it's actually kind of a wonderful place that we came from, right? It makes me feel good about humanity, right? (laughs) That that we came from a place of trust. Yes, well, that we believed in ourselves. Yes, exactly. And we we kind of came from this place of trust where we were like, you could not possibly use this for a bad thing. But I think we're a lot smarter now, and we should be a lot smarter now. And so I kind of look at it very similar to like the cybersecurity problem where it emerged. It was, you know, it was a, it was kind of a small problem. A few, a very few number of companies kind of looked to address it. Then it became bigger and bigger and bigger. People specialized and it was that specialization that allowed them to become experts in like certain areas around information security and especially around things like threat intelligence. And those things, when they came together, built us a better kind of cybersecurity framework. And that's, I think, where we are with misinformation and disinformation and propaganda and kind of all of that and influence campaigns. We're in a very similar place with that, where it's like what threat intelligence was when it started. And you're, everybody's trying to figure out what's the thing I can focus on that I'm good at, where I can make a significant difference in this area to make it better, right? And it's going to be, I think, a similar problem to threat intelligence, where it is kind of a whack-a-mole issue. It is, it is going to evolve, right? And it is going to get better on both sides. And you kind of have to keep up with that, that arms race. I don't think you're going to have like a magic bullet that's going to just make this happen. And suddenly we're not going to have any more misinformation or yeah. disinformation on the internet. So before we get too far into the conversation, Sorry. I just yeah. want to, no, it's good. No, it's great. <laughs> Listeners, if it sounds like we just kind of like hit record in the middle of a conversation, it's because we did. Uh, usually when we have guests on the show, you know, we chat a little bit beforehand and we just got to a point where we're like, oh man, this is great wow. content. So let's just hit record and get going. But just at this point, we will have recorded an intro to talk about Danielle a little bit more. But Danielle is the CEO of Marvelous AI. And we're going to talk a little bit 
about information security and what that has to do with politics. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I, just for a little context, Danielle, would you mind just providing a little background on what your company does? And in the spirit of last night's Democratic primary debates, can you please do it in 15 seconds or less? Oh, I cannot. No, no, I can't actually do it in 15 seconds or less. And luckily, I'm not running for president, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> so I can, I can be quick, though. We are basically coming from the hypothesis that if we use natural language processing and sentiment analysis, kind of advanced techniques in both areas, that we can define and find narratives in specific subject matter areas. And the first one we're really focused on is politics, and specifically politics in the United States around the electoral process and the 2020 presidential election. That's kind of our first focus data set. And the idea is that if we can define those narratives, whether they're positive, negative, support, attack narratives, we can also start to look into what a fingerprint for essentially a, a, a misinformation or a disinformation campaign would look like in that context. So does that give you guys kind of an idea of where our focus is and kind of what we're, what we're kind of looking to try to prove out? Absolutely. And before, before I ask how you do it, because that's the really important part, who's your customer? So our customer is right now, it is political campaigns, it's journalists, it's academics. And, it, and essentially the idea is you create a system for them that allows them to monitor topics that they're interested in or people that they're interested in, right? In the, in the election cycle, it's really more people, right, that they're interested in. But there also could be higher level topics like climate change or immigration, um, NATO, if you're looking at more kind of uh, narratives that are potentially coming from outside the United States or how the United States is viewed internationally. So it, it can be used for topics and it can be used for people. Right now, we're mostly using it for that people tracking component, which is who are who are the candidates that are running for either re-election or the Democratic uh, primary in the 20 for the 2020 election. Yeah, the reason I'm, of course, so interested in this and the reason I kind of ran screaming to get Danielle as soon as I became aware that she and Marvelous AI existed is, of course, you know, I'm a obsessive junkie about how messaging in how the kind of like systemic incentives and structures lead messaging to drive polarization in our nation. And I have like a little bit of technology understanding. And I said, man, it would be cool if someone did this. I bet maybe my company, if we go really rich, could like make a lab out of this or something in 20 years. And then someone said, oh, wait, no, someone's already doing this, man. I was like, oh, gosh, all right. We got to talk to Danielle because what's so important is – you know, in Wedge, we've got this hypothesis that due to some systemic incentives, there is pervasive, pervasive bias and misinformation in media and that this sticks, that that this systemic incentive is essentially evolutionary, that that the, the misinformation and bias and sensationalism is sticky and therefore it wins. It is not that everyone you know, suddenly turned evil. It's just that, you know, ev evolution is evolution. And the, the core thing that's missing is, can we measure that in some way? Because Wedge has a lot of quotes and people can go like, yeah, I can see that. And, but it's hard to say, is it really in a measurable way? And so that's why, that's why I was so excited to bring Danielle on the line. And before we talk about how much it's happening and where it's happening and what it's look like, what it looks like, the big question to ask is, you know, how, what's the methodology? How does, how does Marvelous work? Because dear listeners... You should always know the methodology before you trust the conclusions. Well, I'm kind of making the assumption that anybody who's listening to your podcast probably cares about methodology, right? <laughs> and I've made that with actually with a lot of like the, the kind of the answers that I'm going to come up with. So we, so we, do, we do kind of a, a variety of things, right? It's, a, it's essentially a pipeline, right? So the very kind of start of the pipeline is, is tracking the information in the discourse. And that's done primarily through keyword searches for Google alerts, looking at different mainstream media sources. And we, we, we like to get kind of a cross-section of media. So it's not like we're just monitoring like CNN or, you know, one of those two or three media sources. We're looking at CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, RT. We're looking at downstream comment sites like Reddit, 4chan, and 8chan, Sputnik News, Infowars, Breitbart. Like we're looking for a cross-section. Essentially the 
the what I would consider the media sources that are out there. And then you look across social media as well. And Twitter is probably the largest source of that data, though not always 100% representative of Twitter is a great place for you to kind of like test out a theory. It may not necessarily be and kind of figure out the lines of attack that are being deployed about a specific candidate and potentially actually also find out what's not negative, like what's a what's a fun or interesting or you know joyful narrative that's actually going out about a candidate that potentially you might want to amplify, right? Or that's a truth-based narrative. So you end up with the situation where it's a good litmus test, but it maybe is not necessarily representative of what you're seeing in polling numbers or what you're going to see across all the other social media or comment sites. But it does definitely have some of the, it's some of the largest data sets that you can get a hold of. So it's very, very good for kind of figuring out what's being tested, what lines of attack are out there being deployed, and kind of what narratives are, are pervasive and are likely to kind of potentially move to another another medium, right? Somebody writing about them in mainstream media, them getting talked about on a downstream comment site or getting moved to another another social media site and amplified there. And I'm guessing that might just be because there's like a selection issue on Twitter. Like there's going to be certain people who are not on Twitter. And so that's, it's not fully representative. Yeah. There are certain people who are just not on Twitter. I mean, I would say that they, they skew t- towards, I don't want to say like a, a younger audience. I think it's a little bit more demographically diverse than that, but I would say that probably Facebook skews a little bit older in terms of the demographic. So if you're looking for right now, my hypothesis around Biden actually is, is a kind of a good one. And I haven't necessarily proved this whole thing out yet, but I've when I've looked at narratives around Biden on Twitter, I find that he has very little support, but he also does not have an amazing, there's not an amazing attack surface there against him, but he's polling quite well. So you're looking at that and you're going, okay, well, what is it? Is it that voters that are supporting Biden are just not on Twitter? And so, and I'm getting the majority of my data from Twitter. How do I figure out how to prove that? And then that's, you do that by adding additional data sources, trying to figure out where is that support coming from? Is there a place in social media that is really the vector for that? So I think some of that, you get, you get some of that kind of stuff as well, right? Where you, the demographic of the audience that's actually either supporting or attacking is if they're not represented in the social media forum that you're really looking at or that has the majority of the data, you, you, tend to you tend to get results that maybe are not 100% accurate, right? And that just means you need to cover as many sources as you possibly can. So we pull in a bunch of data from all of these different sources, and then we run a hierarchical clustering algorithm. And that's an unsupervised process for us. So it's not a, it's not a process that we go through and we do a bunch of human and loop learning to train a model. We just run an unsupervised process, and it's augmented by a set of word embeddings. And that word embedding, those word embeddings essentially learn from words that are closely related in our domain-specific corpus. So I'll give you an example. If you look at some, uh, the candidate Amy Klobuchar, who's one of the people who is in the, the Democratic primary, she has uh, two words in her corpus that don't seem like they would be really closely related. One is salad and one is comb, and, but they are related to one another. And that's because mon- a couple months ago, I think huh. three or four months at this point, there was a story that kind of ported an underlying narrative about her, which is that she's mean to her staff. And it was because of somebody wrote a story about her where a staffer brought her a salad, didn't bring her like implements to actually eat that salad. And so she ate it with a comb. And, you know, I can't tell you if it was true or not, <laughs> but I can tell you that it was amplified a lot on social media. And for our corpus, it made those two words much more closely related than they probably would be in any other corpus that I can think of. So that continues, that, it, that learns on a, on a regular basis, essentially from new clusters every, you know, every few hours come into our, into our data set. And then from there, we have, some, we have human-defined narratives. So we are just in the space right now where we are starting to automatically essentially assign tweets and and deal with kind of false negatives and false positives inside of our clusters. So this is a human in the loop process where we define a narrative, we train a set of data that belongs inside of that narrative, and then we move on to a a model that essentially then goes through and classifies new clusters and new tweets and new news stories that come through into an existing narrative. And then the idea is once we move beyond that, right, totally transparent because we have not solved this problem yet, is then we can also say these things are anomaly, right? These don't fit in, within an existing narrative. So you should take a look at them and you should tell us whether they're actually 
things you want to pay attention to or things you don't want to pay attention to or things you want to assign a new narrative to. So that's that's kind of our that's our initial process right now. It's a combination of unsupervised learning techniques, word embeddings. Uh, same thing on the semantic sides. We started with a base semantics library that uh, goes a little bit deeper than kind of the positive, negative, and neutral normal semantics that you would see. We cover anger, distrust, fear, joy, sorrow, surprise, and trust. And that is the same. It's a very similar kind of embedding model where we learn words that are similar in that space, but we start with a set of seed words. And then we can classify essentially in, in a particular cluster, what's amplifying it. Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it joy? Is it sorrow? Right? Is it trust? What's the thing that potentially is you know, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, what we're trying to figure out is what's manipulating you into having some emotional response to this particular group of tweets or group of news stories. Does that make sense to you guys or do you need a little bit more? Totally. No, that's very comprehensive. Doesn't it all seem relevant to what's going on in American politics right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not at all. I mean, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Manipulating our emotions? What? I don't even know. I mean, it can't possibly be happening, right? I mean, certainly nobody is stoking any anger or disgust or fear. I don't think that's happening at all. No, I'm glad. Well, I mean, it is happening, but it's only by the other party. (laughs) I mean, I think it happens. It happens on both sides of the aisle, right? Everybody, everybody's afraid of different things, right? Right. This was going to be what I what I wanted to know is like maybe there's a way to know a difference in magnitude because I'm sure someone's sitting there going like, well, false equivalence, Eric. I'm sure the other side is worse. But what I what is maybe more interesting is are there differences in the sentiments that we're getting? I mean, I would say that actually pretty much your most emotional response is going to be on kind of the anger or the fear side. And I mean, and that kind of like that does kind of move into another area, which is like. You know, what's a smart thing to do when you see something on online media that might make you less likely to be a, a, you know, a misinformation vector? And that might be to be like, hey, if something makes you really angry, think about what you would do if your two-year-old was having a tantrum tantrum, right? <laughs> and you were super angry. You might take a breath and wait 10 seconds before you actually did had some kind of a reaction. That might be a smart thing to do on social media as well, right? <laughs> like just kind of step back for a second, take a breath and go... Uh, is this real or is this just making me really pissed off because it's actually, you know, it's emphasizing some kind of bias that I already have or some belief that I already have in my belief system. So I, I think that I think that what you see primarily, or at least what I see primarily is fear and anger, are the two that get stoked. There is an exception to that. So right after the last debates, Elizabeth Warren had this kind of, I mean, what I would consider like almost whimsical and joyful social media emergence that was kind of, I mean, so when I first started this, like one of my my standard lines, actually, Mm -hmm. when I would give a presentation is there is no joy in politics and there's very little trust as well. Um, (laughs) But this kind of, this kind of shifted me a little bit in terms of that. So she had a two kind of, I put them as uh, you know, she has a plan for that. And then kind of a ladylike narrative. And like some of the cute tweets that came out of that are like, Elizabeth Warren has never asked a bartender, what whiskeys do you have? She's already checked the shelves, right? If there's a line for the restroom, Elizabeth Warren always lets pregnant women cut in front of her. Like that's kind of like the lady, like I'm polite, I'm considerate, I'm like a good person, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to wait in line behind her in Starbucks because she's already figured out what she wants. And kind of her plan for that thing came into this like craving something sweet. Elizabeth Warren has a flan for that, right? Feeling too hot. Elizabeth Warren has a fan for that. Like you just kind of like, they're cute. It's cute. It's almost like this, um, like it's a whimsical and almost proud feeling that her supporters have coming out to support her. And there's very little negative in that. And so I honestly have to say that that gave me like a little, some hope, (laughs) right? In terms of people can staunchly support a candidate and it doesn't have to be like a completely negative thing that they're supporting. Right. It's not an us versus them. It's just actually genuine support. Right. And there's some joy and I think some trust in those types of narratives that we see coming out. There's just maybe not that's not the overwhelming majority of what you see. Right. I'll take whatever hope we can get, I think, when it comes to the the presidential election cycle. Right. Yep. I'll take whatever hope we can get in terms of democracy in general. Yeah, totally. Right at this point in time. Yeah. 
I think there's, I think there is a real, I mean, this is, I think the thing that's interesting is it's not only a U.S. problem. We have worked with a couple of third parties on like the Algerian elections and a few others so that we can, for us, it's a double proof point. It's can we do, you know, Arabic and French and use similar methodology, right? And as well as English, but it's also looking at it and going, is this something that's going on in other places, right? And I think actually it's been going on in other places much longer than it's been going on here. And it's almost become kind of a, a what I would consider a mainstream thing there, which whereas for the United States, it's really something we've kind of discovered in the last like four, maybe the eight years. And that might time with kind of the what I would consider like an explosion in the last five years of social media, social media sources, places where you get your news, like just a complete change in the dynamic in terms of kind of online information architecture. So question for you. You mentioned this Elizabeth Warren is, you know, polite and knows what she wants narrative. And clearly there's other stuff like that out there. But does your AI provide any sort of insight as to how designed that narrative is or merely that that narrative develops as a result of something that just happens to get said? It, what it really looks at is the kind of where it came from, like the idea of essentially the provenance of a narrative. And then it looks a lot at the dynamics of the users that are amplifying that narrative, right? To primarily to help kind of understand whether it's an attack or a support narrative. So that, and that means essentially what is, we, we do uh, some work with a third party site called Media Bias Fact Check. You guys might be familiar with them. They, yeah, they use journalists to kind of define overarchingly how biased and how committed to kind of factual data totally. is a particular yeah. publication. And the transparency of their methodology really appealed to us and the fact that they keep it updated. So we looked at that and we, we take that and we look at it in comparison to a social media user's behavior. So if you share a lot of links from RT or Breitbart, you're probably left of center and slightly less credible, Right. Fox News, you're probably slightly more credible, but you're still, sorry, you're still right of center. And then if you're a CNN person or an MSNBC person, probably slightly more credible, yeah. but left of center at that point in time, right? So the RT and the Breitbart, they're going to be right of center and slightly less credible. Fox News, more credible, probably a little bit, right? also a little bit course correcting for any bias that we might have internally, right? Where we may think that some sources are more credible than other sources, they tend to be a little bit more strict in the way that they actually do their grading. And so we feel like that's actually not a bad course correction for any bias that we may have internally. So we use them and then we infer from link sharing behavior for Twitter users, whether which kind of quadrant they fall into, right? They typically share a lot of Breitbart data. They're probably, they're probably definitely right of center users at that point in time. And they're probably sharing less credible sources, especially if that kind of adds up where they're sharing a lot of Breitbart, a lot of RT, right? A lot of other sources. And then on the left, you might have somebody who shares only links from the daily cause, right? So sure, they may have some interesting content, but they're a little bit less credible than CNN, but they're definitely left of left of center. So does that make sense? We We kind of, we also are looking at Who's sharing the data? Who's amplifying it? Where is it coming from? We we have a some troll selection criteria where we kind of we identify people as you know trolls in the Twitter sphere and also look at kind of how troll heavy is the amplification of this particular narrative. So that gives us some idea essentially of who's pushing it, where is it coming from, who's talking about it, and, and from a political campaign perspective, the hope is that that helps you to actually identify if that narrative matters to you right? If it's coming heavily from a, a base that you don't really think is going to vote for you anyway, you actually might not want to pay attention to it, right? Especially if it's not being amplified, you know, by thousands and thousands of users. If it's a cluster of 45 tweets, you know, you probably don't want to pay attention to it. If it's a cluster of 50,000 tweets, you might want to pay attention to it because that might be something that's getting ready to kind of jump the gap over into mainstream media and get written about because people think because so many people are talking about it, it must be credible no matter where it's coming from. You mentioned that users or that readers, listeners can take a moment to pause and, you know, count to three to ask themselves, is this real? Does this check out? Does this make sense before an emotional reaction? In order to help them pattern interrupt, are there flags or common patterns that you've observed in the presentation of 
biased information or distorted or misinformation versus fairly credible information that we can train ourselves to be on the lookout for to thereby help us be more likely to notice that something is fishy and deserves a little bit more scrutiny? Well, I mean, I would say the most obvious is don't share something unless you've actually read the article, right? I know there's studies on this where like people read just the headline, but I would say that's probably one of the biggest ones is read it because you probably will realize that the headline and the actual content of the article may not necessarily line up with the exact viewpoint that you originally had when you looked at it. I still do think that if something kind of makes you angry to start with, that to me is a litmus test. Like that's what they're trying to appeal to is kind of either anger or fear. And so you should pay more attention to something like that because that's probably whether it's a message that reinforces a, you know, some progressive bias that you have or some more conservative bias that you have. It's probably not a bad idea to pay a little bit more of attention to it. I mean, it's credible sources. It's, it's things like, you know, instead of forwarding it to every public Twitter user or every follower that you have, forward it to a friend and see, get a second pair of eyes on it. I don't, I, I, I'd love to tell you that I have like a magic bullet where I can be like all content from this site you should not pay attention to. But I think that, I think the labels do not right. exist today for you to look at something. You could hit factcheck.org and try to see whether or not it's a, you know, it's something that is, you know, deliberately misinformation. You could do something I do actually sometimes is a Google image search just to take the image, search for whatever the image is and see if the image has been mislabeled, right? And that's a very common technique for something like misinformation, right? Where they want you to not necessarily knowingly forward something, but they want you to believe the thing that they sent and they want you to amplify it kind of organically. So it's, you know, it's definitely mm-hmm. misleading, but it's not, it, it's misleading in a way that is meant to, I think, get or, more organic support. So you, that's definitely one way that you can look at something. You know, if there are statistics or a graph or something that's, that's actually referenced within it, if there are links within it where it references, say, like a paper or something else, click on the link and see if the paper's really there. See if the, if the item is actually the thing that was referenced or if somebody handpicked some, some statistics, right, to feed you that, that further. Right. All of those things, though, they require a lot more time than most people are willing to spend on something, right? Which is why I started with the count to 10, you went to three, which is probably more realistic, right? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, take a deep breath and like, are you still angry at the end? Do you, is this still something that you really want to send? Is that comment something you really want to write, right? It's, it's kind of that, that concept of, you know, when we actually called people on the phone, you know, sometimes you didn't say the thing that you were going to regret, but on online that with the anonymized nature of it, it seems to be a lot more acceptable to post that thing that maybe you never would have said to somebody if you had a personal relationship with them or you knew who they were and they knew who you were. So maybe some of those rules might not necessarily be bad ones, but I can't, the the thing I am sad to tell you is that I don't feel, I, I don't think that anyone has the answer right now that says, Hey, here is we have all the labels that are that need to be available to tell you that something is trying to manipulate you. And that is actually something I think that's a little bit different with our approach is we're not looking strictly for the truth. We're looking more at how is this how is this item trying to manipulate you or play on some emotional framing, right? To to move you over to a, a, another side or to reinforce a bias that you already have. So I think we're more looking at the the niche that we can we can solve is that one, right? How are you being manipulated? And and who is it that's trying to manipulate you to the best of our knowledge, right? In terms of the data that we understand about them more than it is, this is truth or this is false. Because I think the truth or false thing is something you need a, you need a, you know, a fact-checking database and 15 other indicators, Right to help you understand how truthful is this, or how likely is this item to be truthful. I for for fans of the show, uh, they know how much Eric and I are influenced by and refer back regularly to the Stoics, and we we put together <laughs> a set of principles and discussion strategies for like having you know more reasonable conversations, and all this is available on reconsidermedia.com, the resources section. And the thing that that struck me and that I'm I'm so pleased with is 
you know, one of the things that you just mentioned, t- counting to 10 or counting to three, and just kind of taking a moment to be aware of that anger, like that, that reeks of stoicism. Reek is probably not the right verb, but it's just like being aware of what's happening in the moment when it's happening, I think can, can be such a powerful tool in a media environment where so much is designed to create a knee-jerk reaction and not just anger at the other, but um, at what the other is saying, but also righteous anger. So you could be angry at what the other person said, or you can be angry about something that your own tribe said and be like, yeah, we're right. It's that, that righteous attitude. And I think that being able to pause and just recognize that anger as it happens can, can really help a lot, not just in responding to the other party, but also just in terms of the sources that you yourself generally take as credible. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, th- I think it's also just, a, it's a, it's moderating that anger a little bit, right? Like you, you can't, you can't go around constantly being angry. And that's actually why I use kind of the, your kid throws a tantrum tantrum, like a temper tantrum, right? You're not going to, you're not going to scream at your two-year-old, right? Or well. you shouldn't be, right? I mean, you might, right? I mean, and yes, everybody makes mistakes, okay? <laughs> but, and gets frustrated, but <laughs> ultimately you want to get into a situation where you can manage that anger so that you can, you can kind of encourage better behavior, right? You don't want to have a temper tantrum because your two-year-old had a temper tantrum because you're really not teaching the right lesson in that particular case. And you want to be calm when you're dealing with your children, right? Calm and moderated. You want to be a good parent. So the same thing should kind of be the way that you moderate your online activity, right? You want to, you want to be a good citizen of the internet. And yes, that kind of goes back to that like hippie free love internet thing from like the 90s. Yeah, man. (laughs) I mean, it really does. And that, and I have to be honest with you, like that is the, the genre that I came from, right? Where, you know, when I started on the internet, there was no Google, there was Veronica oh, and Archie yeah. and there was, yeah, there was no mosaic was the first browser. And that came out three years after I started working on the internet. So it was BBSs, and, you know, it wasn't, and there was weird stuff, right? <laughs> there was, you know, there was some crazy things going on, but there just wasn't as much of this, like, I don't know. It, identity politics didn't feel like it existed at that point. Right. We felt, yeah, we felt like back then, oh yeah, weird people will get together and have dark corners on the internet that we won't, like crazy people will have their dark corners on the internet. That's fine. But what we realized is that the internet turns us all crazy in the light. And that's the. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. The the anonymity of it, I think does encourage people to kind of be the worst, the worst versions of themselves. And I think even, the like even something like a Facebook approach where it was like you had to have a you, they wanted you to be a real person right that was the idea right that was going to make you better you're still anonymous because nobody really knows who you are right <laughs> I mean you're just a person that's on Facebook at that point in time yeah and what with and within your own group you know we see one of the things we that I mean this this is we didn't see it in wedged but that I did some research for in wedged was that you can is that self-selection by political leaning is very very strong in social media and so oh it is it's huge it is and so what it means you is can- even when even in groups of people where we're not anonymized we are we are highly highly reinforced because there are no social there there are you know if you think of kind of like the balancing forces in our own psyche there are no credible conservative forces there are only credible reinforcing forces that are like everything you said is right and all the time and you know anyone who you know if you hear about megalomania or narcissism right when you get told that you're right all the time you become literally insane (laughs) Um, it's it's diagnosable right and so there's this like my my model for it is that there's this megalomaniac in all of our minds on the internet that is surrounded by people who tell us how right we are and they like our stuff and everyone who doesn't tell us that we're right gets ganged up on by all of our friends and shoved, you know, run out of town. Yeah. I mean, that is not necessarily like a totally crazy theory. I do think you do. I think you run into some people who don't have that little megalomaniac inside. Right. So all they really care about is kind of like making a difference. But I think I do agree with you Mm. that those are probably, those are a vast minority, right. (laughs) Of people 
right? That that is not the majority of what you see on social media, right? And and right. you get things like the like button, like reinforces that, but does that really solve the problem if we eliminate the like button? Like I've read a bunch of articles and studies on that recently where it's been like, oh, get rid of likes or stop displaying how many times it's been retweeted or how popular something is. But right. isn't that ultimately the reinforcing function of social media? So do you now, now you've broken social media, right? Exactly. Right? Do, yes. And like, to somehow, like, why would I care about tweeting if, if I was a person who really was like really jazzed by that reinforcement behavior? Why would I still use social media if you took away that thing exactly. that was incentivizing me? Yeah. And the, this is a digression I know on your marvelous technology, but the, it is a little bit of a digression. <laughs> yeah. The, the, la- the only last thing I'll say for people that are like, I'm on social media. I'm not a megalomaniac is that, you know, if we return to, if we return to the wedge hypothesis, the, the entire problem with social media is that the very kinds of people who then trend towards that megalomania and group think are the ones who get most amplified by the very nature of the process. Right. And so it could be that the vast, vast majority of people on social media do not turn into megalomaniacs on there or or monsters of some sort. However, it is the people who are most prone towards, you know, towards altering their own behavior to be reinforced by, you know, again, through an evolutionary process, altering their own behavior to create extreme emotions in others that get reinforced through likes and shares that get amplified by those likes and shares. So they do it more and you get a runaway process as opposed to a self-correcting process. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah. And ultimately it's a minified version of what most high school, most people's high school experiences have been. Right. (laughs) It is a little bit like you're, it's a popularity contest. Like, you know, if you're, if you're the underdog, you kind of get beat up on social media. If you're in power, you get amplified on social media and you become more and more popular Right. Your opinions become fact because you are popular. So, I mean, as terrifying as it is, actually, that is a lot of what you're that is a lot of the culture that you're kind of the worst of high school culture is what you're amplifying <clears throat> when you're looking at kind of the social media dynamic. <laughs> that or, or I'm not but I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist. So that is just my opinion. But kind of riffing off what you were saying. Right. It it is. It's not just it's not just like kind of a, you know, a self-reinforcing kind of, I don't know, learned narcissism. It is it. it, We have that dynamic in other parts of our culture and it's we're just taking it to a different stage and to a much larger scale, probably than what we had previously. So I I definitely want to use the opportunity chatting with you to see what sort of insights we might be able to glean from, you know, being in this election cycle right now. But before I ask that question, I, you know, you mentioned who some of your customers may be for Marvelous AI in the beginning. What what would the product look like? Like if I'm a journalist and I want to have you know a better understanding of how narratives are trending and designed and sort of how they're spreading, what would I be getting from Marvelous AI if I bought yeah. something from you? Okay, so you so you basically be getting a dashboard. Right. And that dashboard would give you a set of topics or a set of candidates. So say you're, you know, you're a political opinion journalist. Um, the data that we're collecting right now would probably be very relevant. Um, you might track mm, yeah. a few candidates that you're very interested in or track a few candidates against each other. And now you're you know, tracking where the information is coming from. You're tracing it out. And then you're getting an idea of what the narratives are essentially around that candidate. And you may be someone who's actively participating in the platform where you're helping to say, hey, I think this narrative is on track or it's not, right? So you might be annotating, more of like, kind of like an expert crowdsourcing, or you might not be doing that. You might be taking the data and like downloading it, putting it into a, a system or a format that you, the annotated data that you're more comfortable with, and then taking that and writing about it. So we've done a couple of stories in StoryBench. We've done a bunch of blog posts. A lot of the stuff we focused on in the early time was a topic that I consider kind of an easy one, which is, hey, is there a... I think our hypothesis going into this election cycle was, hey, it's such a diverse set of candidates and it's such like ethnically and gender based, at least in my lifetime. I think I've never seen such a a Democratic or a Republican primary list that is that is this diverse. So I kind of went in with this maybe optimism, (laughs) right, where 
it was going to be better in terms of like gender dynamics and there weren't going to be as many character-based attacks and it was going to be a, a more positive election cycle, even more focused on policy because you wouldn't really be able to focus on race and gender because there was such diversity in the base that in the, in the group that we already had. That did not necessarily hundred percent play out at least. Yeah. At least in what we initially found. Well, I like to go with the optimistic. I'm sorry. Right. Like let's go with the positive and see if the positive, if we make the positive work. And I mean, interestingly, it has, it has definitely switched. Like the first, we did a study in the very beginning where we were looking at uh, first day mentions essentially on social media for the top six male versus female candidates. And that was Bernie Sanders, Biden. And this was in terms of polling data in terms of the top candidates, Bernie Sanders, Biden, Amy Klobuchar, okay, Harris, Warren, and then Buttigieg. So that was kind of who was polling. And this was about when they announced their campaign and essentially the amount of social media coverage they got on that day. So it wasn't like this. We were we were not like looking at the same day. We were looking at the official campaign launch day and then the amount of social media coverage they got kind of that the following couple of days after that. And we found actually that Harris got a lot more coverage than everybody else did. And that actually a lot of the, and the other candidates were pretty even. So if you were just looking, if I posted an article on, you know, some website and wrote an article about how women and men are being covered equally in terms of social media presence and mentions, I would have, I I would have been totally legitimate in posting that data, but it would have been very misleading because the type of coverage that they were getting was definitely not, not similar at all. So we found that essentially female candidates were disproportionately covered by the opposing party with attack narratives versus male candidates, right? That there was a huge amount of kind of bias in terms of, so, you know, Wright was covering Warren, Harris, and Klobuchar at a much higher volume than they were covering Biden, Sanders, or Buttigieg. And they also were covering them with attack narratives, right? It wasn't, and, and overwhelmingly, all female candidates had a character-based attack narrative. So it was, uh, for us, it was Kamala Harris, not authentically American. She's not progressive. She's not black. It was the Elizabeth Warren lied about her ethnic heritage, that Amy Klobuchar is kind of mean to her staff, doesn't treat them well. That was her prevailing narrative at the time that she actually launched her campaign. Pete Buttigieg, it was, he's he's the real front runner. He's going to make a difference. He's running a good campaign. Bernie Sanders, it was very similar, right? He's Everybody else is lying, but he's the real guy who's kind of going to poll better than everybody else. And then there was one around Joe Biden, which has prevailed for him. He's creepy to women and he has a lot of baggage. And that kind of creepy, sleepy Joe narrative has dominated his campaign. But in the beginning, when he first announced, it was a lot more around, okay, so he's got this issue. Can we still elect him? Right? Is he still the guy? He's still the most well-known. Is he still electable? And that one, I think, yeah, that one, I think, has definitely shifted more to he's creepy around women and it's not okay for Democrats to be creepy around women. So you, he might not, it's not just about electability. Now that has transitioned, I think, into more of a, more of a character-based narrative. But when he first announced, it wasn't that way. It was more about how do we elect this guy and still have kind of what we consider like a character. Right. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's an in, that one's an interesting kind of transition, but that was one of the very first things we we kind of came out with. I would say the big thing that has switched is that Harris is is being attacked pretty much constantly and trolled actually very effectively as well. But Biden has very little support, but very little attack as well on social media. So that leads me to believe that we're missing a source for him and understanding it. And Warren has switched to what I would consider almost an entire, like 85, 75 to 85% of her narrative on Twitter is positive. It's support-based narratives and it's much more policy focused than anything else. So that part gives me some hope, right? We're talking about policy, we're talking about a female candidate, and we're talking about it in a very positive way, right? She, she is getting, she's taking some lumps, but they're primarily around narratives that existed and persisted about her before, which is, you know, she lied about her ethnic heritage. She is kind of a, she's an opportunist, right? With this kind of the Dow chemical representation that she did early in her career. And you get a little bit of her and like her most recent policy 
release that she's done that was based on kind of her new, like how she wants to renegotiate trade. She's getting kind of pushed into this bucket where she's more of a nationalist than Trump is, right? So she's got, there's some danger signs there. But for the most part, I would say overwhelmingly, on at least on social media, she is being represented very positively. So that shifted around, right? Our, like it's come back more to the optimistic side. Now, you don't know what's going to happen between now and the next debate or the debate after that or the actual primary, right? So all of these, all of these things that we're seeing today, right? So whether it's a tactic that's being used on a candidate who's not going to make it to the very end of the cycle, or it's a tactic or a narrative that's emerging about a candidate that's doing very well, they could definitely, you could definitely have techniques that are being tested now early in the, in the kind of the cycle that might be utilized later in the debate cycle against a totally different candidate. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. The thing I'm thinking about is, you know, there's a lot of interesting insights that come out of this. And, and obviously, given your, given your current customer base, it makes a lot of sense. What I'm, of course, interested in is, is there a consumer version of this? Is there some sort of, you know, we install antivirus. Actually, we, interestingly, we've kind of, our, our operating systems just have it now. But, you know, yep. consumers started installing antivirus. We started preferring phones and uh, email providers that could block spam. Yep. Is there a future for Marvelous that includes being a consumer service that lets us block BS? So I think that for us in the short term, right, it is more about helping you to like providing some kind of a freemium interface that allows you to track your candidates, see what's going on about them, right? See if, see what's, what people are saying about them and understand like, Hey, what could I do, right? To, to maybe counter this thing that I think is not, not true, right? Um, or to amplify this thing that I think is actually really great. And I do think is a truth-based narrative. So I think in the short term, it's probably more about that. I think our long term is really more about is providing something like what you're talking about, where maybe it's not is this BS or not, but it's here is an opinion on the type of people that are amplifying this, where it's coming from, understanding like, you know, kind of a basic scoring algorithm on how likely it is to be something that is really truthful or even maybe something that is, you know, defending open discourse around a topic. Right. The whole idea of the Internet was we were going to be able to have these wonderful conversations and solve all the world's problems because we were going to have these open forums that everybody could participate in. Right. So if you can get us a little bit closer to that, where we can have a real discussion about something and what the real issues are without all of that kind of emotional BS. Right. That's associated with clickbait and all of the other you know, tactics that are out there, then you might be able to provide somebody if you want to participate in that, you know, troll heavy, crazy conversation, then you get pushed to your, your, your silo of the internet where you have your conspiracy theory discussion, right? Which should basically still be able to exist, right? People should be able to have their theories and discuss them. But if you're a little bit more mainstream and you just want to know like, Hey, this is a real issue that we should be having a discussion about. And here's the reasons why here are the people who are amplifying it. Here's how likely this is to be truthful here's how you're being manipulated by this, right? And, and if the manipulation quotient is actually pretty low, right, then it's likely that it's probably, like if the emotional content is low, it's probably likely to be more, much more of a fact-based item. And if you can 
if you care about that, that would be something that would actually be useful to you to understand and to know. But I think it has to be paired with media literacy initiatives and kind of a, a multidisciplinary approach, right, in terms of understanding how what behaviors in social media are really the ones that kind of drive people to this kind of groupthink amplification, even if it's kind of amplification that you don't really mean to do, right? Those types of techniques, they, you do, you need a service more to the user. And I think, I think our biggest problem at this point in time has actually been kind of the UI UX challenge of how do you surface something that's meaningful that isn't also manipulating the user, right? (laughs) So something that is meaningful and truthful and helps them make a better decision but doesn't just overwhelm them with so much information that they they don't they don't care right or they or they don't take the time right just like they do today because there's such a huge amount of information on social media right you need you need the best bang for the buck and that's i think the that's i think the problem that everybody is trying to figure out how to solve right now right how do you how do you provide that but i do think ultimately you're 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 onto something when you're talking about how do i kind of have that bs meter right? You get, you get kind of into this, this ethical discussion of, are you suppressing kind of free press, right? (laughs) If you filter sites, but there is something to be said for, if you can define kind of what is the, what's the, I don't know, uh, the virus signature, right? Of misinformation or disinformation. If you can figure, if that can be figured out through a variety of indicators, then you have something where you can tell people you really shouldn't go to this site. And it's because it's actually going to, it's going to negatively impact you. And it's going to negatively impact you in a very similar way to what ransomware or a virus would, or some kind of malware or adware would for, for your kind of general internet experience. I think, but I think, so I think you can get there, right? I don't think the problem is solved. How about that? Yeah, no, definitely not. But the fact that we have, a beginning towards one of the potential solutions, I think, is, I mean, a recurring theme in this conversation has been there is cause for some hope and optimism. And I think there's so many people out there who have been so drained of hope in the political sphere. And all that remains is frustration or nihilism or anger. So it's nice to it's nice to have that. I have one specific question for you in terms of something that may or may not be trending. If if you haven't had the time to look into this issue, then no worries, and we'll just skip it. In the uh, debate last night, last night was the second round of the second Democratic. This is the, this is the Tulsi. This is the Tulsi Kamala issue. Uh, no, you're going to ask me about it's not. Oh wow. Okay, I'm sh- I'm totally shocked. That it's not that. <laughs> yeah. No, I got something completely different for you. <laughs> uh, one of our sort of like founding principles at Reconsider is is if we feel so strongly about it that we don't reason, reasonably think that we can have sort of like a, a rational conversation, not rational, but like a neutral conversation about it, we are just upfront about it. And one thing that I'll be upfront with our listeners about is like the structure of these debates is infuriating to me. I hate them so much because it's just like, I think it's everything, they embody everything that's wrong with the political discourse of today. It's like, like I said at the beginning, you have 30 seconds to discuss this really complicated policy issue. It's like, okay, great. Everyone's going to try to get a sound bite, right? So there's one moment that I thought really stuck out and I'm not supporting one candidate or another. I just thought that this was 100%. Andrew Yang? Yeah. At the, in his closing statement, <laughs> I, I thought it was a unique moment because everyone else, and I don't fault them for it because that's how the game has been stacked. They're playing the game. And Andrew Yang, that was a lot of rhyming, he was the only one who called out the the flawed nature of the game. And at the end, he's, you know, he said something along the lines of this is, this is a farce. We're all standing up here with our makeup. It's clearly just reality TV. And this is why we elected a reality TV star as a president. So my question for you is how is frustration about the structure of these debates trending? Does that even exist? Or are people just kind of like hook, line, sinker buying into all the back and forth and personal attacks? So I would love to give you hope um, in this particular area, but I don't, I, I don't, I see very little that's trending in that area, right? Where people are looking at fixing the debate system. There are a couple articles, like I think the Washington Examiner wrote something and a couple of other kind of like mainstream media outlets have written some things about debate formats and, and kind of how they're inherently broken because how can you get something across in a 30 second soundbite, right? You're, you're clearly optimizing 
for a very, very, very short format. And some of these issues are actually really complicated. And some of the policy recommendations that candidates are making are very, very complicated. But I don't think that that's coming across. That's not a a core theme that I see in terms of narratives across any of the candidates right now. I'd say the one that I think is probably the most hopeful is that there is a lot of discussion in kind of the in Elizabeth Warren threads that she is the clearest communicator of what her policy proposals are. So the perception is that she does well in that soundbite format in terms of explaining some nuances of her policy proposals. But even that, like, I mean, I am a pretty politically savvy person. And when I go to vote for a candidate, this is me personally, right? Not the company or I'm not representing anything that is company related, but I tend to read the candidates' websites. And if they have like long policy proposals, I will read through them to see if it really does the thing, right? The, the four bullets that they're giving me, is that really the summary or does it really do something that is in those four bullets, but it also does these other five things that I'm not really that fond of, right? I don't see a lot of people clamoring for like a longer debate format or a format where the candidates can talk for four minutes or five minutes about a particular policy or debate or can have slides, right? Or something, some kind of visual aid that would help them to really clarify what their points are. I mean, it's interesting to me actually that to become president of the United States, you don't have to actually develop a PowerPoint, but to raise money for a startup, you know, even if you want to raise $10,000, you have to have developed like a real thesis of your business and you have to understand kind of the problem and the solution and how's your business going to grow. And, but we can make you president without you having to really have kind of alliterated any of your policies, right? Other than in a 15 or 30 second soundbite. I don't disagree with you. I just don't see it trending. The only thought I had when I was mulling over your point about free speech. So I'm, I'm moving back a little bit and I realized like, holy smokes, that makes a, that actually makes a lot of sense that doing a full block the way that we would block spam because, you know, we, we essentially vet lots of power that puts a lot of risk over the spirit of free speech in the United States. If we create and popularize a product that says this is false or misleading, I'm going to block it from you. And I hadn't even thought about that. But what I what I came to as an alternative to that product is one that is merely informative, which sounds like, you know, which sounds not all that hopeful. And I would think that it would require a little bit more help from a societal trend and I think that societal trend, if someone is armed with with that kind of tooling and it becomes trusted, I assume the societal trend would be towards, you know, accuracy being a form of, of social status where, you know, humans are very status seeking animals. So we we there are all sorts of things that elites will decide are gauche, right, are, are uncouth and with the power yeah. to differentiate fairly easily what is BS and what is not, there is the potential for social elites. I don't, I don't necessarily mean political elites, but social elites to, to unify around this idea that, ah, you're, you know, you're spouting stuff that is easily falsifiable. How uncouth of you, at which point when it becomes, you know, would it, should it become a, a matter of social status all of a sudden, you know, the momentary motivations that we have in ourselves are going to change dramatically. And so I, you know, have it, having that insight that the long-term, you know, your long-term product has the potential to provide isn't sufficient. And, and I really respect your, your point about not blocking someone's conspiracy theory or whatever, but has the, has the power to arm people to, um, you know, engage good old classic human hind, you know, a hundred thousand year old hindbrain of, of social status to strive to be, you know, to be better in some way. Um, and it could be, you know, it could be turned for good. So I don't know. I don't know if you have a response to that or a thought about that, but it, it popped into my head. I, I do think that that kind of the idea of like kind of reputation or social status in terms of your truthiness, right. Could potentially be a way forward, right. How trusted you are. I, I, my only and and maybe I'm, you know, the antithesis of kind of what the Facebook developers were, right? <laughs> Where it was like, oh, this could never possibly be used for a bad thing. 
right? We never anticipated that things like this would happen. But I do kind of look at that and I'm like, okay, well, what, how could that be used for bad? And then you run into these issues where not only do other parts of cybersecurity impact it, like uh, a highly respected, very truthful proliferator of information, their account gets hacked. And now that person is being used to proliferate a kind of a counter narrative that, you know, makes it into the, the kind of information, uh, you know, sphere that we have out there and is trusted because it comes from someone who has some kind of a high reputation score, right? So you have to, it's not that I, it's not that I, I, I think that's probably the right motivator, right? It's the right kind of like human nature thing that you're finding that you're motivating people based on. But I do think you have to think about what are, what are the kind of the bad things that could happen as a result of that, right? Could somebody cultivate a highly truthful account for 10 years and then a state-sponsored actor turns it against the people that have been following it, and now they push something out that, you know, is highly destabilizing to democracy in general, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the, the bigger, like, almost existential problem that we have right now, right, is that, like, misinformation, it's, it's not just, like, paid trolls and, like, bots that promote it. It comes from regular people right? People who are essentially unwitting agents and they're not necessarily aware of their, that role that they have in kind of amplification or the polarization in terms of the comments that they put out to their community. And that sows doubt about science, journalism, democracies, you know, how, how democracies are not just Western democracies, but how emerging democracies are like being perceived worldwide. And so I think that I do. I'm not saying I. I don't have a hundred percent like. Hey, I've solved this problem. I understand it, but I am trying to be thoughtful about it. Which is, I definitely think there is more information that you can expose to people that helps them make better decisions about what they share and what they don't share, right? And it helps to kind of make the entire social media ethos a better place. But I do think you have to think about the other side of that, which is what happens when those things are compromised in some way, and what are the different ways that they could be compromised, and so you can at least be transparent about things that you might want to look for, right? What are some of the indicators that that has been compromised? And that could be actually some automated parameters around somebody has been, has a high reputation score, but they suddenly start posting things that seem like they're completely, you know, divergent from what their normal kind of posting behavior is. And that could be some kind of a, a an alert system that goes out to not only their followers, but also to their, the, also to them to understand that potentially a compromise has happened, right? And that's very similar to, if you look at it, it's very simpler, similar to InfoSec, right? You monitor, you monitor today right. your credit report and where your credentials have been shared, right? And why not monitor, if, if your reputation is very important to you, you should monitor the type of stuff that's being posted and get notified when something that's posted that seems like it's kind of off from what you would normally post so that you can be like, hey, I did not post that which means my account has been compromised or something else has happened. Some other, some other behavior has happened. Does that make sense? Like, so that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it, like in terms of framing the problem and trying to figure out what are some of the ways that we might be go, able to go about solving that type of problem if what we did was use more of kind of an incentive and reputation-based score for people from an internet perspective. Yes. And that's why I mentioned the free speech thing. Yeah, that's why I mentioned that like you, it, it is kind of like, it is not an American value to squelch someone's opinion, even if it's wrong, right. right? So you kind of run into this issue where you want to provide people with transparency about data that is likely to be factual or correct, but you also don't want to, you don't want to push down something that is, at least in American society, push down something that is just, it's just an opinion-based thing, but they're still entitled to their opinion, right? We're, we're very against that. It's, it's much more of kind of an EU or European value where the government has some culpability, right? And kind of uh, fund, funded media has some culpability for the ideal of kind of defending democracy and, like, and, and discourse. And I'm not saying that I don't think maybe we shouldn't have a little bit more of that in the United States, but it, it isn't necessarily the core foundation of our ideals, right? We're about free press, free opinions, like being able to express yourself. Every group has a right to their opinion. So parting thought before we go, because we are, we could keep going for hours here, but uh, 
but I also we've probably exceeded our time. I have a feeling. <laughs> yes. So the thing I want to, the last thing I want to ask on our way out uh, is, what help are you looking for? At Marvelous, are you looking for investors? Are you looking for employees? Are you looking for customers? Probably all the above, but you know anything that a politically savvy podcast nerd audience might be able to help with. So I would be remiss as a CEO and not saying that we are looking for investment because um, <laughs> that would be pretty much like the antithesis of my job. So we definitely are looking for investment right now, especially things that will kind of get us to nailing the 2020 kind of election use case that we've come up with. I think we can do a lot more and there's a much broader use case that we can solve. But when you're a startup and you're small, you got to stay focused. Otherwise, you won't accomplish your goal. So that's the one that we're focused on for right now. In terms of we're definitely looking for customers. We have an alpha right now. We'd be excited actually to get even individual users in to kind of come in, look at what we have, give us some feedback on especially the UI UX side, how understandable things are. That kind of feedback can be invaluable. In the, especially in the, in the kind of the beginning of your product development process. So even on that kind of more, hey, come in, do a, do a pilot with us for three months or, you know, do a demo the current system that we have if you're kind of a concerned citizen and pay attention to what's going on in politics and give us some feedback on how easy this was for you to use. Um, and I say that would be kind of more the concerned citizen journalist side of things. And then the I would say the one on the hiring side that we're really looking for is someone who is passionate about politics and also passionate about kind of like data visualization on the UI and UX side, because that is it's very hard to have data that's as complex as we have and portray it in a way that is easy for people to pull in on a daily basis and move in and, and actually integrate into their workflow. And so that is definitely a problem that we are continually trying to solve. So somebody who is interested in that in terms of kind of the hiring process or a firm or somebody like that would be someone we'd be very interested in talking to. And Danielle, how can they find you? Uh, you can hit us at uh, marvelous.ai or you can email me actually at Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E at marvelous.ai. And I'm pretty good at answering my email. Great. Well, Danielle, thanks so much for joining us today. And listeners, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for having me. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.